Well, howdy, Lakeside. How are you guys? Happy Sunday morning, September. Pretty, pretty cool thing. Just curious, who here, anyone a history buff out there? Anybody into history? You and me. Is that it? Oh, okay, we got three. All right. So I am like, I nerd out on history stuff. Like, I love the History Channel. And you know, if you talk to anybody that's into history, they generally have like that time that's sort of their favorite. And for me, it's the World War II time frame. And um, yeah. So in the early 1930s, Germany was in chaos. The nation had just come through one great world war, the Depression, and inflation and unemployment were on the rise. And Germans as a whole, they were disillusioned with their government and their sense of national identity. The future did not look bright for this country. Yet there was this young leader and his growing National Socialist Party, also known as the Nazi Party, that would step into the chaos. Young Adolf Hitler would amass power. He would reestablish confidence in the state. He would bring economic stability back to the country. And more than anything, he would restore the promise to the German people that their best days lay ahead. Many of the military, political, and religious leaders were throwing their lot in with him. I mean, he seemed to have all the answers. And in those early days, he was unstoppable. He was not afraid to use his power to keep power for his party, their agenda, and himself. Yet there are some who would oppose this new leader, One of the most famous of these was this man named, uh, young theologian and pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I just, I love this guy. And one of the things that he did early on that made him remarkable is he recognized how evil Nazism was from the beginning. And it was in the weeks before Hitler would become chancellor that Bonhoeffer gave a speech on public radio titled, The Younger Generation's Altered View of the Concept of Fuhrer. He said this, to the wishes of his followers, who would always make him their idol, then the image of the leader will gradually become the image of the misleader. Leaders are offices which set themselves up as God's mock God. And before he could finish his talk, the broadcast would go dead. He would go on to use every bit of his power his influence, his connections through his family, his wealth to stand against this new leader in his party. And there were so many brave things that he did. Yet one of my favorite is when as the political situation in Germany was heating up and the state was getting more and more ruthless against anyone or anything that stood in their way, Bonhoeffer received an invitation to come to New York City and be a, be a teacher in... Um, Union Theological Seminary in New York. And while on the ship to America, he was reading his Bible. And he came across a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, which says, He who believes will not flee. It was as if the words leapt off the page. He would later write to his friend, I have come to the conclusion that I've made a mistake in coming to America. 
I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian, Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. It was as if God was saying to him, your beloved Germany is your holy ground. Your nation is not a place to run from, but it's actually a place to run to. And so when he arrived in America, he would board the last ship back across the Atlantic to Germany before war would break out. He would return to the political climate and circumstances that would literally cost him his life at the all too young age of 38. Bonhoeffer's story is so inspiring. And like many people like him, what makes his story so inspiring is he saw every bit of his power, his influence, his energy, his intelligence, everything he had as a tool to serve others. So inspiring. I mean, I can think of little more inspiring than men and women who say, my power, my influence, what I have at my disposal is a tool, not for myself, not for my own ego, but it's a tool to be used to benefit others. Isn't that inspiring? Man, we read books about these people. We go to monuments dedicated in their honor. We watch Netflix documentaries about these people. We name our kids after them. We aspire to be like them. We hope our kids marry people like them. Like, it is just radically inspiring. At Lakeside, we talk about one of our values is that we are all about giving ourselves to others. That's who we are. That's what we do. That's what our church is like. We give ourselves to others. We're in a series right now called King Me, and we're talking about power. And we're using the story, we're focusing in on the story of Israel's monarchy. And over the past few weeks, we've been reflecting on the story of King Saul. And today, we're going to be continuing that story. We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and you can follow along in your Bibles or your, the YouVersion app. And I have to say, you know, in my life, there are seasons and moments where I, I get burnt out. I get burnt out on faith. I get burnt out on this whole Jesus thing. I get burnt out on ministry. I just get tired. I find my inner life starting to wander. And in those moments when I open the Bible and it just reads, I just, I'm missing it. What I do is I go back to this David story. I go back to First and Second Samuel. I love this story. I find it, it just encourages me. I, I find myself in the story. It just, it brings me back to what I really believe in. It's an amazing story. It's powerful. And if we're really going to follow Jesus, we need to know this David story. Because after all, Jesus was the son of David. This David story is, first of all, a human story. These stories are about people like you and me. And like us, they sometimes got it right and sometimes they didn't. It's interesting how brilliant these storytellers are because King Saul, the bad king, we find out he, he really wasn't all that bad. He wasn't always bad. Or the good king, David, we definitely find out that he, he wasn't always good. 
What the storyteller presents us with is these kings, these men were first and foremost men. They were people, people like you and me. People who were called to live a life of faith. People who were called to actually take their power and use it to serve others. But will they do it? Will they get it right? These stories also reveal to us that none of us know, I mean, we really don't know what we'll do with power until we get it. I mean, everything's hypothetical until someone actually hands you the keys and says, you're in charge. Everything's hypothetical until you actually get the title, you get the promotion, you have the corner office, you get the money, you arrive at the platform. When all of a sudden you become the one evaluating and not being evaluated. It's in those moments when you and I get power, we discover who we really are, and nothing reveals more about us. Nothing reveals more about a man or a woman than when they are trusted with power. And in the background of our story, we, Pastor Sean shared with us last week, Saul, the beginning of our story today, Saul has been rejected as king of Israel. He has been rejected. I mean, he still is king, but as far as God is concerned, he has been disqualified from his position. And God is about to do something different that will forever change the political landscape of Israel. So in chapter 16, verse 1, the Lord says to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I will choose one of his sons to be king. But Samuel says back, and you know, Samuel, he was a seasoned statesman at this time in his life. He, he asked this question, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. He knew how risky it was to do what God was asking. He knew that Israel had a long history of men and women who had power, using their power to kill prophets. And he knew that Saul was growing more and more desperate and that he was descending into somewhat of a mental illness and a, and a state of paranoia. Samuel's moves would need to be calculated and tactful. So the Lord says to him, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. And Samuel did what the Lord said. So Samuel gets everything together, heads off to Bethlehem. And when he gets to Bethlehem, he finds Jesse and his family. And he tells them, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourself and come with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and invited them to the sacrifice. Jesse, being kind of a small-town guy, was excited that Samuel's there, excited to introduce his boys to the famous prophet. And as was the custom in the day, he brings out his firstborn son, and he brings, it in fr brings him in front of Samuel. And Samuel takes a look at him, and this, this boy, he was impressive. He was tall. He was handsome. He was well-spoken. 
He answered all of Samuel's questions. He had this look about him as someone who needed to be in charge. And I wonder if Samuel thought to himself, oh, this, he reminds me of King Saul. Not King Saul today, but King Saul back in the good old days when he was young and fresh and ready to take on the mantle of leadership in Israel. Perhaps Samuel saw him and thought, you know, maybe, maybe this, this boy would actually do better than Saul did. Maybe he's the one. Surely the Lord's anointed stands before me. But the Lord whispers to Samuel and says, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Samuel doesn't know what to do now. In essence, God says to him, Every way you're thinking about this is incorrect. And Samuel must have thought, Well, I don't have anything to go off of but appearances. I don't know any of these boys. I've only been to Bethlehem a few times. I don't know these guys. And God says, you're going about this wrong. I have a different calculus that you do not know about, and I can see what you do not see. As Samuel is pondering this, Jesse brings out his next son and his next son and his next son, until all seven boys pass in front of Samuel. And each time Samuel looks at these boys and says, not the one, not the one, not the one. Eventually, Samuel's wondering to himself, did I get the address right? I mean, are you, are the, are you the right Jesse from Bethlehem? Am I in the right place? What is going on? And Jesse remembers, he's like, oh yeah, I got that other son. I mean, I totally forgot about him, which is crazy. Can you imagine forgetting about a son? It's crazy. He, he remembers, oh yeah, my youngest son. He's out tending the sheep in the hills. Samuel says, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. David walks in. The Lord says to Samuel, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And the storyteller tells us that Samuel, after that happens, he leaves. And that's it. That's the story. Isn't that crazy? So let's recap. Samuel makes an unannounced visit to this little sheep village in Bethlehem. Jesse and his sons are invited to worship. Samuel meets the boys and anoints the youngest, and then he leaves. There's no explanation to Jesse what Samuel has to do with him and his sons. There's no explanation to David why he was anointed or what he must do or what his next steps are. He, Samuel just anoints him and then leaves. What is going on here? It seems like the most important things that are happening in the story are not being talked about. God tells Samuel to stop mourning and get on with anointing another king. God even gives him a cover-up to protect him from the wounded and dangerous soon-to-be ex-king Saul. Samuel's inner dialogue with God is the focal point of the story. It is in this dialogue that God reveals to Samuel 
the true litmus test for leadership and power in verse 7. And this is so huge, guys. This is what he says. God says to Samuel, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. See, David had something going for him that made him qualified. Something inside him. Something that no one one saw. His inner life was being formed in those Bethlehem hills. He is a young man, the youngest in his family. He had the look of a teenager who spent his childhood falling asleep under the stars with his stringed instrument by his side while the campfire died out. Every day and night, an inner life was growing in this young man. A love for his creator, a love for his sheep, a love for beauty, a love for justice and the hills, hill country of his hometown. He was paying attention to his God. He was thinking and praying and singing and working and wondering and dreaming about his life and his calling. What would he become? What was God up to with him? And all of this happened away from the spotlight, away from national attention. There were no pictures, no likes, no followers, no subscribers. Just a young teenager in the Bethlehem Hills, attentive to his sheep and his God. Everyone in his family thought David was unimportant and only good for remedial work. He was the uh, official babysitter of the sheep. And when David would show up later to battle Goliath, David's oldest brother would sneer at him. And with as much condescension in his voice as he could muster, he would say, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? In other words, David, you don't matter. His older brother and most people thought, you know, if you could fog up a mirror, you could watch sheep. But yet that sheep watching in those Bethlehem hills was the holy ground in which his inner life was being formed. And David had pain. You know, every teenager has pain. I've worked with teenagers for a while now, and I've yet to meet the high school student or the middle school student that does not have pain. Every teenager has pain. And David had pain. He felt the pain of loneliness. He felt the, pa- the pain of being isolated in those hills. He, fa- he felt the pain of not being valued by his family. He knew in his family he was seen as the least. And he knew it. Everything about his family said he did not matter. Even his dad forgets about him when the prophet comes to town. Yet in his pain and in his work, in his daily responsibilities, something was growing in him. Something that no one knew about, but God noticed it. David was forming an inner life, a well-crafted life. A life that was altogether God-dominated. 
Later, one writer would say that David was a man after God's own heart. And I don't think he ever would have had that kind of heart if it wasn't for those Bethlehem hills and that time he spent out there watching sheep. So how do we do this? How do we follow in the footsteps of David? How do we grow our God-focused inner life? How do we do that? I think there's a couple things we got to do. I think the first thing we got to do is we got to be present. We got to be present. You know, everything in your life, in my life, says, if I could just get away from these problems, like if I could just get my kids out of diapers, or if I could just get a better job, or if I could just go on a vacation by myself, like if I could go to a house over and just stare at a lake and have coffee and read, then... I could grow my inner life. Then I could grow that heart attentive to God. Like if I could just break away. What's true in David's story and it's true in our story is that God always works in our lives and never separated from them. God always works in our lives and not somewhere else. God forges our inner life while we work our jobs, while we taxi our kids to and from school and home and sports. He grows our inner life as we wash dishes and wipe little noses and change diapers and wait in traffic and do laundry. As we work our jobs, as we make sales calls, as we work with customers, even as we write code, God is forging in us an inner life. All we have to do is be present in it. The greatest goal in, my, in our house right now is we want to get my youngest, or my Jonathan, my son, to sleep through the night. Like, that is, like, the goal. That is what everything is about right now at our house. And so we do the kind of a five-hour feed him, and about five hours later, Michelle will feed him again. And in that in-between time, it's my job to sort of get him back to bed. So there's many nights where... I'm laying in bed, it's great, so comfortable, and I feel just in my back. <laughs> You're up. So I get up, I stumble, I pick, pick him out of his bassinet, and then I'm leaving the room, and my daughter loves to position her toys in the hallway like booby traps. <laughs> like I'm kicking stuff, and I'm like stumbling down the hallway, I get out, to, and I sit in my chair, and I'm just like, oh, this is rough. Like, you know that feeling. I got to be present. It's not comfortable. It's not easy. But that's where I'm at. That's what I've been called to do right now in this season. The wise thing to do is to be in it and not be looking to be somewhere else. What if that situation that you're in right now that is not comfortable, is not fun, is not what you would prefer is your holy ground. What if God, in the situation you're in currently, is actually beckoning you on, calling you to grow your deeper life? What if this is your holy ground this season you're in? And what would it mean to be present in it? The second thing I think we've got to do, we've got to be present and the second thing is we got to be attentive. We have to be attentive. 
See, David was attentive to his God. He didn't have much else to do out in those hills besides watch, watch the sheep, and notice his God. For him, God was the center. We live in a world where everything is vying for our attention. We have so much stuff coming at us. Most of us sleep at night in arm's reach of a cell phone where at any moment a text, an email, a phone call can come in. I mean, we have a 24-hour news cycle. We have fantasy football drafts. We have so much stuff coming at us that is vying for our attention. What would it mean for you and I to be attentive to our God, to start to look to him in our work, in our parenting, in our day-to-day grind, to find him in this holy ground that he has given us, and to start to notice him and pay attention to him and start to seek him and what he's doing inside us. Guys, when we're present and when we're attentive, that's a recipe for transformation. After returning to Germany, Bonhoeffer would lead a network of conspirators who were working inside and outside the government to undo the Nazis and bring down the tyrant. Bonhoeffer had organized a plot to assassinate Hitler with a bomb cleverly disguised in a briefcase. However, in the meeting where the bomb would be detonated, the desk Hitler was sitting at had such a heavy tabletop that it would shield him from the blast, saving his life. Hitler surviving the assassination attempt would seal the fate for Bonhoeffer and some of his fellow conspirators already imprisoned as enemies of the state. He wrote to Eberhard Betke from Tegel Prison on July 21, 1944, in what would be his final days of life. This was the day after the assassination plot failed, and no doubt Bonhoeffer knew his days were numbered. This is what he writes. He writes, I discovered later, and I'm still discovering right up to this moment, that it is only by living completely in this world that one learns to have faith. By this worldliness, I mean unreservedly in life's duties, problems, successes, and failures, experiences, and perplexities. In so doing, we throw ourselves completely into the arms of God, taking seriously not our own suffering, but those of God in the world, watching with Christ in Gethsemane. That, I think, is faith. So I was out of town earlier this week, and I missed the meeting where they planned the weekend gathering, and I'm really curious as to how come I got up after the song about getting old. Totally chance. Just random, pure random, Josh, is that, yeah. Hmm. Except it's not really about that, right? It's not really about getting old. It's just that the older you get, the more you spend, you've spent your life searching for a heart. You spent your life searching for some kind of heart. You go, that's the heart that I want. And so for a man like David, it was his desire to have a heart that was like God's heart, to have a heart that was after, shaped after, patterned after God's own heart. It's a heart of gold. It's the inner life that Doug was talking about. It's this thing inside of us where we go, I want this thing in here to match up with my God out here. That's what I want. 
in our series that we're in right now called King Me, we're spending some time talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament. And our pattern is sort of to have one of our pastors talk about the Old Testament story and one of our pastors talk about the New Testament application. Like, how do we live this out? How do you search for that heart of gold? How do you search for that heart that God wants you to have, that heart that's after his heart? So I want to take a minute or so today and just talk through some of those application things from the New Testament and hear a story from Jesus. If you have your Bible and you want to turn to this, I want to show you a story in Mark chapter 10. If you just want to listen to it, that's fine. But here's the story of Mark chapter 10, uh, starting at verse 17. It's a story uh, from the life of Jesus. It says this, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. And you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud and honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said, again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we've left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the gospel, will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Here's a story of Saul and David written in the New Testament from a different perspective. Here's the story of a young man who comes running up to Jesus with a plea. Like, Jesus, what do I have to do? Just tell me what I have to do to inherit eternal life, which is an odd question because you don't usually do anything to inherit something. All you have to do is be born. How hard is that? It's hard for somebody. But it ain't you. Right? So it's like, what do you do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do? Here's a young man who's used to doing something in order to get something. And he's very much like us because we are so used to doing something to get something. Like, Lord, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes, well, you know, you know the commandments about doing things. You know the commandments. So I like, like don't murder and don't commit adultery and don't lie and don't cheat and don't steal and honor your mom and dad. You, you know those. He goes, all of those I've kept since I was a child. I've been doing all those things. And I love this. It says, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. 
Jesus had compassion on this man who was used to doing things to be first in line. He loved him, but he said, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. It's interesting, when Jesus listed off the commands for this young man, he listed off all the commands that dealt with our relationships with others, with human beings. Like, don't, don't kill other human beings, and don't commit adultery with other human beings, and don't steal and lie and cheat against other human beings, and honor your mom and dad. But he left out all the commandments that dealt with our relationship with God, like, like the one that begins the whole list of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus looked at this young man, and he, and he loved him, but he recognized there was a lack in him because all those commands that dealt with his relationship with God, they were missing because he had replaced God in, those, in that relationship with all this stuff that he'd worked so hard for. When Jesus said, sell what you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me, the man, his face dropped. He became sad because he was rich. The word rich means someone who matters. It's like he had so much stuff that he mattered. He had so much uh, stuff that he had substance in his life. He was a man of substance because he was rich. He's a lot lot like us because we've got stuff and we matter and we're important. But Jesus said, get rid of those things that make you think you're important and come follow me because there are many who are first who will be last and the last will be first. And here's a young man who was used to being first in line. He was used to being first in every way. And Jesus says, look, there's many who are first, they'll be last. The last will be first. How do you know where you are on that spectrum? I mean, don't, don't you want to know? I mean, that's, the, that's what the story's about. Don't you want to know? How do I get there? How do I have a heart for God? How do I get myself in a position where I'm going to be honored by God? And if the first or last, how do I, how, where am I? You'll know where you are on the spectrum. You'll know where you are in relation to a heart after God by how you treat those people whom you perceive as being lower than you. I mean, because really, God's not the one who labels us first and last. God loves, God, doesn't God love us all the same? Shall we, shall, shall we vote? God loves us all the same. Don't you know that verse, like the really famous one in the Bible? What's that one say? Yeah, God so loved the world, like not not God so loved the first, and not even God so loved the last. God loved the world. That's all of us. God's not the one who labels us at one end of the spectrum or the other. God's not the one who says, yo, you're first, you're last. Who are the ones who do that? We do. You will know how you stand in relation to a heart after God by how you treat the person you perceive as lower than you. For example, have you ever been on the phone to a call center? You have. Have you noticed? I don't know how this works. You can tell this. You can tell this over the phone. You notice that you made this call from California, but immediately your call is routed around to the other side of the planet, like the dark side. 
it seems like because you get on the phone and now you're talking to somebody about your problem, but you, but you can't understand what they're saying even though you know they're speaking English because they don't speak it like you speak it. And I'm not speak, saying they don't speak it as well as you. It's just said with a different accent. And sometimes it's hard to hear. And then while they're speaking to you, you realize they're not solving your problem to your satisfaction. Does this ever happen to you? The question is, how do you treat the person who's on the other end of the phone? How do, you, how do you treat the person who you perceive to be lower than you on the spectrum? How you treat that person tells you where you are in relation to a heart after God. Have you ever treated a janitor like they're just a janitor? You ever treated a flight attendant like they're just a flight attendant? You ever treated an employee like they're just an employee? See, if you've ever treated another human being like they're just an anything, then you're, you're still falling short of the heart of God. You're just a, mm, you're just an, mm. God never says you're just a something to any of us. He says, I love you so much that I sent my son for you. I want to have a heart after God's heart. I want my inner life to match up with God's inner life, God's heart. We have values at Lakeside Church that we have brought from the scriptures to say, we, we want this to describe us. We want this to define us. One of our values is we give ourselves to others. Why? Because when we give ourselves to others, we are on the path to treating people like God treats them. We are on a path to having a heart after God's own heart. When we give ourselves to others. One of our values is we celebrate life-giving grace. Why? Because when we celebrate grace in this world, when we give grace and we pass along grace, and when we celebrate that grace that someone else has received, we put ourselves on the path to treat people like God treats them. We put ourselves on a path after God's own heart. One of our values is we love meekness. Which means when I use my power for the benefit of somebody else, we love meekness. Why? Because when we practice that, when we give away our power to somebody else, we put ourselves on the path to treat people like God treats them. We put ourselves on the path to have a, God, a heart after God's own heart. And that's what we've been searching for all this time. And that's what God looks at. Jesus, I pray for us that we would be this kind of people. That we would be the kind of people who look at the people around us. And sometimes if we would evaluate others, we'd say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm higher up than they are, Lord. But I pray that we would look at people and we would say, what can I do to bring you up? What can I do to make you number one, to put you in first place, in first chair? Lord, how do we treat people like you treat them? 
How do we understand how you treated us, and how do we then transfer that to others? Would you open our eyes to let us see opportunities to live like that, to be like that, to serve like that? And Lord, may this be, by your power, may this be something that transforms in us so that it becomes natural to us, not something we have to think about to accomplish, but it just comes from us like it comes from you. Lord, thank you for the power you have in us to do these things. We honor you together in the name of Jesus. Amen.